Good morning. I'm sorry we can't all be here together this Lord's Day, but uh, I'm glad that you could join us online. Please pray with me for God's help as we open his word this morning. Father, we do come before you and we ask your help, uh, Lord, especially in a difficult season, uh, Lord, and especially for the dear saints in our body who are fighting off illness. We pray, Father, that you would give particular strength and grace, uh, Father, that even that Uh, Many who are sick would be able to join in sitting under your word this morning. Father, we pray that you would fulfill your promise to us by sending your spirit to help us, uh, to conform us, Lord, uh, to fulfill that wonderful promise that you are conforming us to the image of your Son as we are shaped and molded by your word uh, closer into his image. We ask in his name, amen. You know that moment in your favorite suspense novel or action movie when the plot approaches its climax? The protagonist and his allies have gotten their heads around the challenges they face, and there is now the promise of what seems like a long-shot plan for everything to work out for a satisfying ending. The brave and clever hero is going to save the innocent victims of the enemy's plot. The bad guys' injustices are about to be repaid, with the good guy and his team reaping and generously sharing the benefits of their victory. As this moment approaches, your hero's vindication, which in a sense is your vindication as a reader or as a viewer, that vindication, that success, that revenge or triumph, it can't come fast enough. Well, these same elements, the elements of a good, exciting story with an exciting climax and the anticipation of a favorable outcome, These elements are frequently present in the greatest story ever told. And this is the greatest story ever told. Because it is the true story of this world and its people, and the prince of the power of the air, and his evil forces who have plotted against this world and its people and their maker. This story and its moment of climax were appreciated by the two elderly saints, Simeon and Anna, as recounted in Luke's gospel. These were just two among the many in Israel who were looking for the Messiah to appear around the time of Jesus' birth, in line with the 70 weeks prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9. Now you can tell from their words, as Luke records in chapter 2 of his gospel, that Simeon and Anna expected that the appearing of this Messiah would mean salvation for both God's people Israel and for the Gentiles, for the whole world. Now, this was a good and biblical expectation, and God even blessed Anna and Simeon's faithfulness with direct revelation about his Messiah and with the privilege of seeing him in person before they died. Unfortunately, however, much of the Jewish anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah was not so biblical. We find in the intertestamental literature, in some of the books known as the Apocrypha, that the popular expectation in Israel was for a politically and militarily powerful Messiah. Many Jews living under Roman rule expected that the Messiah's coming would provide them with immediate relief in ways that would make them wealthy and that would bring them vindication and success in worldly and in political terms. This agrees with what Paul writes about the error in Israel's thinking relative to the salvation God had promised. Paul writes in Romans 9 and 10 about how Israel had mistakenly thought that the law represented an opportunity for them to put their own righteousness on display. This was a mentality that said, 
we are Jews. We've been given these great laws and we keep these laws so fastidiously. This shows that we are so far superior to others. We may be suffering now, but we shouldn't be. And soon everyone will know that because the Messiah will show up and take all of your political power and money and give it to us. Now, because of this way of thinking, Paul writes, Israel missed the point of the law, which was to lead them to the Messiah as God's righteous, righteousness as a gift, which they so desperately needed. They completely missed that point, which Paul calls, calls the telos, or the aim, the end of the law, not knowing about God's righteousness, Paul says, they used his law in a futile effort to establish theirs, to put their own righteousness on display. You see, although the Jews had read and studied this greatest of all stories, they had misunderstood it in a massive way. When they read about the promised enmity between the woman and the serpent, and between her seed and his seed, when they read of the judgment of the flood and of the promise to Abraham and of the redemption out of slavery in Egypt, when they read of and experienced the pain of exile and the hope of a messianic deliverer, when Israel read of these things, they, not every single Jew, but Israel generally, did so with this fundamental misunderstanding. Rather than seeing this unfolding story as the vindication of God and his righteousness in showing mercy to sinners and continuing to pour out his goodness on a rebellious world, which Paul argues in Romans only makes sense in light of the cross. Rather than seeing this as the great story of God and the vindication of his righteousness, they saw it instead as a story about themselves and their vindication what they hoped would be the proof of their own righteousness or even their own superiority for the whole world to see. And so, as the time approached for the Messiah to appear, most of culturally conservative Israel, those who paid some attention to the scriptures, grew in their anticipation of a strong political savior. Now at this point, the question should be asked, what exactly was it that Israel was hoping to be saved from? The fact is, things were okay in many respects under Roman rule, even for religious Jews. They were free to practice their religion, and they even had a king, Herod, who although appointed by Rome, he identified himself as a Jew, and he had undertaken to restore the temple to its grandest condition since the time of Solomon. But, as is typical of any people, and especially of proud people under the thumb of a foreign power, Many conservative Jews chafed against the authority held over them by Roman Gentiles. You see, according to the Jewish worldview, Gentiles were inferior in pretty much every way. And they, the Jews, saw themselves as destined to be the nation to which all other nations would come and bow themselves in humble reverence. But for now, in comparison to a world power like Rome, Israel was living in relative poverty and weakness. In fact, it seemed like Rome was enjoying the position that was supposed to belong to Israel. Instead of all the nations bowing before Israel's wealth and wisdom and power, Israel found herself among the many nations compelled to bend the knee before Rome's vast political power and resources. And so, Israel's hope, generally, was that the Messiah would soon appear and turn the tables. 
that the coming Messiah would bring Rome and the other nations to their knees as a vindication and glorification for Israel. The world would finally see what Israel had always known, that their lineage and traditions represented evidence of their right to exaltation, to riches and power even greater than what was enjoyed by the Roman Empire. This is the historical context into which Matthew writes his gospel. His historical eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Matthew wrote to mostly a Jewish audience. As such, one of Matthew's primary agenda items in his gospel is to explain that contrary to what most Jews expected, Jesus is actually the Messiah who fulfills all of the Old Testament promises and anticipations to which faithful Jews like Anna and Simeon were clinging. And as Matthew sets about ably proving his case, calling on the testimony of the Old Testament and connecting that with the events and facts of Jesus' life, two questions were very much in need of an answer. First, why is the Messiah a poor, weak, despised character who seems ill-equipped to save himself, let alone Israel, from the political powers of their oppressors? And secondly, if Jesus is the Messiah, how is it possible that Israel would not only fail to recognize him, but that they would actually conspire with their oppressors to put him to death? In our text this morning, Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15, we find God's answer to these questions that would have been most pressing for Matthew's audience as they grappled with the claims of what he wrote. As we study these verses, we find three unexpected features of Christmas that will highlight the backwardness of the typical Jewish way of thinking. In this text, God helps us to see that the way of glory is actually the way of humility. That the way up is the way down. That human weakness is exactly what is needed to see the power of God's wisdom. In the three unexpected features of Christmas, we find that contrary to a typical worldly way of thinking, it is actually the hardships and the weaknesses of God's people that he uses as the proving grounds for his awesome salvation. Now, if you haven't already done so, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 2. I'm going to read for us verses 13 to 15 from Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now you'll find on your outlines for this morning the three unexpected features of the first Christmas. So let's start by looking at number one. The hostility of Christmas. The hostility of Christmas from verse 13. Matthew's first words in verse 13 point back to what has just happened in the narrative. Now, when they had gone. These words refer back to the Magi, also known as the wise men, 
who are described in verses 1 to 12 as having seen a sign in the sky which prompted them to travel from the east in order to worship the Messiah. Now Matthew leaves this implied, but we can infer from what he writes about them that these men were students of the Hebrew Scriptures, of the Hebrew Bible, and that they believed what they read. And in terms of what they read and were likely responding to specifically, we find the key Old Testament verse linking the Messiah to the image of a star coming from Israel in Numbers chapter 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Now in the context of Matthew 2, What Matthew is doing here is alluding to a chain of texts that includes Numbers chapters 23 and 24. And as I begin to bring in this chain of texts, starting with what I just read to you from Numbers 24, let me just take a minute and explain something that the E4M, the Equipping for Ministry guys, have probably heard from me more than once this fall. This is an illustration I was given by a professor, and I've found it to be helpful ever since in thinking about what the Bible's writers are doing when they make references to previous parts of Scripture. What I need you to do is think with me of a really gooey plate of brownies that someone has tried to cut into squares. And when you think of this, you have to imagine, and this this is likely true because they're really delicious, you have to imagine that you really love brownies. So there's this gooey plate of brownies, and you take a spatula and push it under the brownie to pull it up onto your plate. Now, with a gooey brownie, are you going to get just the nice, neat little square someone had cut out and which you had seen and gone for with the spatula? No, you're going to not pull out just that nice, neat square of brownie. You're going to get a bunch of extra gooey brownie goodness that is connected and pulls along with that brownie onto your plate. Now, in this way, Scripture is kind of like a gooey plate of brownies. When a writer gives you a few words from an earlier portion of Scripture, he wants you not to pull just those few words onto your plate and into your heart, as it were. He wants you to understand what he understands, that those few words are stuck to their whole context, and that you should want, with him, to pull all of that Bible goodness that is connected with those words into your understanding of his text as he uses those few words to make a point that is interconnected with a bunch of things the Bible has said across the ages through numerous writers. Now there's good reason to think about this dynamic in this text in Matthew 2, and it has to do with more than just the verse I read a moment ago from Numbers 24. You see, when we come to verse 15 of our text, we're going to find one of the most misunderstood quotations of the Old Testament in the New Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where Hosea writes, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now what we find when we think about this as being like a gooey plate of brownies is that one of the most significant allusions in Hosea 11 is back to Balaam's oracles in Numbers 23 and 24. So that's part of the gooey goodness that we should be pulling into our hearts as Matthew references that text. Now, as in those chapters in Numbers, Hosea, in his text in chapter 11, likens Yahweh, who is himself the Messiah promised in those texts, to a roaring lion. Yahweh is like a roaring lion who is mighty to save his people. 
that dynamic, that reality is present both in Numbers 23 and 24 and in Hosea 11. And so they are connected. Now, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, because we're not to verse 15 yet, I want you just to realize that Matthew, even before he gets to verse 13, is tying into this thread of Old Testament scriptures that developed the theology and anticipation of God's coming Messiah. So that's what Matthew's doing. He's tying into this thread of Old Testament texts anticipating the Messiah. So looking back at verse 13, Matthew writes that when the Magi had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now, there's a lot in this verse that we could spend too much time on, frankly. But I want to draw your attention mainly to what should be the most shocking reality in this verse. I mentioned earlier that Herod, who had been appointed by Caesar as king over the region that included the land of Israel, Herod self-identified as Jewish and had undertaken a grand restoration of the temple. And it was well known that although he was actually Idumean in his lineage, which means that he was a descendant of Esau, Herod styled himself as the king of the Jews. He liked that title for himself. And this was a label that traditionally had belonged to the house and lineage of David. And this is part of why it's so shocking. In the midst of Matthew's case for Jesus being the Messiah, he is compelled to report that the man known in the present day as the king of the Jews actually had set about to search for and to destroy the Messiah. And although we're not to the Hosea quote yet in our text, by this point we should start to pick up on Matthew's logic in quoting Hosea. Keep your finger in Matthew 1, but turn for a moment to Hosea chapter 1. In Hosea 1, we find an important detail about the context in which Hosea writes, particularly important as it relates to Herod and his murderous activities in Matthew 2. In Hosea 1, in the first couple of verses, God establishes that he is going to use Hosea's marriage and family as a picture of of his judgment against Israel's spiritual adultery. In verse 3, Hosea's wife of harlotry bears him a son. And in verse 4, God says this to Hosea, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Jezreel. Now, there are two things to know about Jezreel. First, which Hosea directly references here, is the event in which Jehu undertook a slaughter at Jezreel. We read in 2 Kings 9 of how Elisha, God's prophet, sends another prophet to Jehu in order to anoint him king of Israel according to God's instructions. Now, part of the reason God raises up Jehu is so that Jehu can serve as God's instrument of judgment against the house of Ahab, who was an evil king in Israel. Now, carrying out God's instructions, Jehu kills Ahab's heir, Joram, and then later, with some help from the elders of Jezreel, he slaughters all 70 of the sons of Ahab who had remained in Samaria. Now, according to the writer of 2 Kings, this was a good thing because Jehu was simply carrying out God's appointed judgment against the house of Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. 
But unfortunately, Jehu didn't just stick to God's instructions. In this battle, Ahaziah, the king of Judah, and the descendant of King David had accompanied Joram of Israel into battle. In verse 27, when Ahaziah sees that Jehu has successfully killed Joram, he turns to flee. And without any instruction to do so, to do so Jehu pursues Ahaziah and orders his men to shoot him dead in his chariot, which they proceed to do. And so Jehu, the appointed non-Davidic king of the northern kingdom, slays the Davidic king of Judah, the seed of David, God's appointed king. And the rest of the story is even more astounding. What Jehu started, Queen Athaliah completes. Seeing that her son Ahaziah was dead and fearing that her hold on power might be threatened, she sets about killing every living seed of David, undertaking one of the most significant acts of hostility against God's redemptive purposes in history. One lone descendant of David, Joash, who would become king at age eight, survived the bloodshed at Jezreel, which was begun by Jehu and completed by Athaliah. Now, does this sort of event that sets Hosea's scene, a mass slaughter of male descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, does that sound familiar? This should start to bring the picture of Matthew 2 into focus for us. Why is Herod, the king of the Jews, seeking to destroy the Messiah? As much as anything else, this is a fulfillment of the original promise of Genesis 3, that the serpent's seed would be opposed in relentless battle against the woman's seed. The serpent's seed had attempted something similar through Pharaoh's murderous decree when Moses had to be hidden in the bulrushes to escape that slaughter. And then in 2 Kings, all of the Davidic seeds, save for Joash, were murdered by Jehu and Athaliah. And now in Matthew 2, Herod is undertaking the same sort of slaughter to overcome what he perceives as a threat to his earthly reign. But we must ask, how is it that this one called King of the Jews, Herod, is in reality a seed of the serpent, who instead of joyfully receiving the Messiah, would rather undertake to destroy him? How is it that Herod, the King of the Jews, would destroy God's appointed means for his people's salvation? And Hosea helps serve Matthew's purpose in explaining the answer to that question. God says in Hosea 11 that the more he sent his word and his prophets to his people, the more they went astray. Remember in Israel's history how they wanted a king like the nations? They rejected God from being king over them, and so God gave them Saul. And then later he gave them Jeroboam, and then Jehu, and now Herod. Each of these is nothing more than Israel's own fruit, the fruit of man rather than the fruit of God, as Hosea records when he writes God's words. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. Israel produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Herod is on the throne. The king of the Jews is seeking to murder God's Messiah because Israel is continuing to produce their own rotten fruit 
And God is continuing to give them a king like the nations. Friends, even as it answers a pressing question Matthew's original audience would have asked, this serves as a cautionary tale for us. To what extent do we hope and strive for peace with the world and its power centers? To what extent might our efforts to that end represent the misguided fruit of man that bears an unfortunate resemblance to what Israel repeatedly reaped under men like Jehu and Herod? Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't hope and vote and pray for a more favorable situation relative to the policy positions of our political leaders. That is a good and even a biblical endeavor. But like with all biblical truths, that truth does not stand alone. There is also truth, and it is in the text before us that prods us in a different direction than we might be used to in our relationship to political power. And if we've lost this in our thinking, it may well be that we've neglected a truth to which the Bible gives much more emphasis and clarity than it does at all to the idea that we should be engaged in the world's politics. And so, this is a timely word for our present moment. You might see the world and its politics seems increasingly hostile to you. It seems hostile to the church. It seems hostile to the Messiah. Friends, if you find yourself feeling you could identify with those whose freedoms or even whose very existence is threatened by those with power, potentially leaving you or your loved ones like the baby Joash needing rescue in your seeming weakness, like the baby Jesus and his parents utterly lacking in resources, if you are among the weak and needy, if you face hardship, Friend, you are in good company. The Apostle John writes that we should not be surprised when the world hates us. As part of his explanation in 1 John of biblical assurance, John is saying with these words that this is actually part of our assurance. When, like Jesus and others who suffer for righteousness' sake, we encounter hostility from the world and its power centers, This is part of what gives us assurance that we are with Jesus and in his salvation. With similar logic, Peter writes these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Did you catch that? Suffering like Jesus did at the hands of hostile powers is the very thing that shows that you are blessed and that the spirit of God rests on you. And so if the present political moment has you unsettled, Take courage, and without reservation or regret, throw your lot in with Jesus. If his father could, in his sovereign power, make Egypt a safe refuge for the newborn Jesus and his resource-poor parents, while the king of the Jews was trying to hunt them down, then you may be sure that he is able to work to subvert or even to exploit the most seemingly hostile political powers 
and agendas to accomplish his holy will in your life and in your family's life. There is nothing God cannot or will not do to protect and prosper that which is most precious to him. He is mindful of you and will do everything necessary for you and for those you love for the sake of his great name in faithfulness to his promises. Even and perhaps especially when the political winds are hostile. So Israel's messianic expectations are already somewhat upended by our first unexpected feature of Christmas. While popular expectation was that a powerful political Messiah would give them peace and prosperity in worldly terms, God brought a weak and humble Messiah who from day one faced hostility from the world and its powers, even among his own people. God's perfect will was that his Messiah should face the hostility of Christmas. Looking next at verse 14, we find the second unexpected feature of Christmas. Number two, the humility of Christmas. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Who would have thought that the Savior of Israel, the long-awaited ultimate redeemer of the people who had once been gloriously redeemed from slavery in Egypt, who would have thought that the Messiah himself would be of such mean a state, so poor, so weak, so helpless, that he would need to flee for refuge to the land of Egypt? What we see here is incredible condensation. This is incredible. I'm sorry, incredible condescension. This is incredible humility. These surely are some of the features of the incarnation Paul had in mind when he wrote these words to the Philippians. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave the condescension, the humility of Christ. Could there be more of a contrast between what the Jews had hoped for and even what they had in Herod, a powerful, wealthy, industrious king who could promote Israel's interests, and this most humble of people, a baby whose parents couldn't even afford the main prescribed sacrifice at his temple dedication? A baby who was forced with his parents to flee to Egypt a land that represented slavery and oppression for his people. While a tyrant king, styled King of the Jews, ruthlessly murdered what was probably around 20 baby boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem in his effort to kill the Messiah. All while that Messiah, a helpless infant, was utterly powerless to protect himself, let alone his people. Now, do you remember that picture I tried to paint earlier? the moment of climax in your favorite suspense novel or action movie? Is this the brave and clever hero you'd have show up? Probably not. And this was certainly not the glorious and vindicating outcome Israel had hoped to see at the appearing of their Messiah. But again, this is how things work in God's economy of human capital. The way up is actually to go down in humility. The way to God's power 
is the way of human weakness and reversals and hardship. And Jesus is not alone in this. King David understood this. He was not afraid to be seen a fool by his wife, Michael, as he danced in front of God's ark on its way into Jerusalem. Even more, listen to some of these words, or some of our favorite words from David's pen. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord, Yahweh, is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Friends, do you know the occasion when David penned these words in Psalm 34? He wrote these words when he feigned madness, acting like a crazy man, letting spittle run down his beard so that he would not suffer harm at the hands of Abimelech. Incredible, isn't it? How one of the most humiliating moments in David's life produced some of the most powerful truths to come from his pen. And if there's another biblical figure to embody this kind of humility and weakness besides David and Jesus, surely it's Paul. Paul, who was given such glorious visions of Jesus beginning on the road to Damascus. Paul, who was the incredibly fruitful apostle to the Gentiles and who himself penned over a quarter of the New Testament. Paul, who receiving that initial vision was struck with blindness and needed to be provided refuge on his arrival in Damascus, who was lowered in a large basket by his disciples at night through an opening in the wall so that he could escape his own countrymen who were waiting to kill him. As we learn even more clearly from Paul's pen later, God values this kind of weakness in his servants. Friends, we, with Paul, should boast about our weaknesses. We should be well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, because it is in our weaknesses that God's power is perfected. Again, beloved, let this teach you to be well content and not to long unduly for circumstances that would give you peace and prosperity in worldly terms. The men we think of as the greatest men of Scripture, David, Jesus, Paul, and I didn't even mention Moses, these are men of great weakness and even greater hardship and pain and suffering. If you find yourself harassed and helpless, subject to the cruelties of this cursed creation and its power centers, not to mention its disease and difficulties, its illnesses and death. Friend, rejoice and be glad. You are in the company of a Savior who became weak and harassed and helpless in ways you can only dream of. Now looking again at verse 14. In the midst of unthinkable strain and stress and difficulty, we find a model for the kind of humility God would have us put on at Christmas and always. Matthew's emphasis here is on the urgency of Joseph's action. Matthew writes, While it was still night, Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and left for Egypt. Now don't miss this. In verse 13, a messenger from God brought the Lord's instructions to Joseph during the night when Joseph was sleeping, instructing him as to what he was to do. 
And what does Joseph do? Without delay, he gets up and he obeys. Now, I realize that having read this perhaps dozens of times, Joseph's response here may seem obvious and like something of a foregone conclusion. But think about it a little more closely. Here's a young man who's endured the shame of an, of a, an apparent out-of-wedlock pregnancy. He's submissively traveled far from home with his pregnant fiance to fulfill the government's census requirement. He's taken on the daunting responsibility of caring and providing for and protecting this woman and her child in a strange place with apparently sparse provision. And now he receives word that the king, the king, Herod, the king of the Jews, is searching for the child, Mary's child, in order to destroy him. Don't you think that the urge might be there to sin in response? perhaps even a powerful urge for Joseph to say, that's it, I've had it, I'm out of here. This isn't even my child. I've been mocked, I've struggled, and what thanks do I get? Now I get to go to a place that's even more strange, a place that represents hardship and slavery and unfaithfulness for my people. I'm descended from Davidic kings, and this is the treatment I get from our God? No, no more, I'm done. What kind of wisdom does that sound like? Yes, it's worldly, but is it unreasonable? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. How much is God asking of him? How can he possibly bear this? And the answer, again, is this. Under the same heading, the humility of Christmas. You may recall in our last sermon from Genesis, we saw that God created man to be dependent Even before the fall, remember? Adam didn't know what to do until God told him. Here, Joseph didn't know what to do until God told him. And when God's word shows up, however it shows up, for Joseph it was an angel, but for us it's in God's sufficient closed canon. There is only one acceptable response, and that's the response of humility. And friends, it is in moments like the one facing Joseph in this text that the test of the sincerity that tests the sincerity of one's claim to faith in Almighty God. You see, it's relatively easy to check the obedience boxes when things are going well. When the requirements of the word seem in step with a happy, easy, healthy, prosperous life, well, who's to say that the steps that look like obedience are taken for love of God rather than love for comfort? Sooner or later, and this is true today for some of you, God calls you to something that is hard. Something that is not going to lead in the short run to ease, to health, to worldly comfort or prosperity. And here again, the way up is the way down. The one who would hold on to his life, to his comforts, to his health, to his wealth, he will lose them all. But the one who hates his own life, who despises himself and repents in dust and ashes, who seeks the beauty of the Messiah, who is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, forsakes all else to make him his treasure, this is the one who, losing the world, will gain his soul for eternal life. Friends, this is Christmas humility. 
the way to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, is to say with Joseph, I will simply do what God tells me to do. And I will do it right now. I have no other hope. So contrary to popular expectation, the Messiah is not powerful. Rather, the king, the one with all the power locally, in human terms, is hostile to him. The Messiah is not one who can boast in his riches or in being born into auspicious circumstances. He is a helpless baby, forced to flee, whose stepfather, Joseph, obediently flees with him to a foreign land. God's Messiah is one who is born into what can justly be described as the painful humility of Christmas. And all of this sets up for our third unexpected feature of Christmas. Number three, the hero of Christmas. Verse 15. The first words here finish the thought from verse 14. He, Joseph, remained there until the death of Herod. Joseph obediently kept Jesus and Mary in Egypt until the angel returned to let him know that Herod was dead and that it was now safe for them to return to Israel. And again, we find in verse 21, Joseph obeyed. And it is in light of everything working out this way, that the enemy would die, that the death of Herod would come, rather than the death of this helpless baby, that Matthew points out the real hero of this Christmas story. Now, why do you think, and this is a theme that starts in the Old Testament, why do you think that the Messiah is a stumbling block for Jews? Precisely because this, weakness, humble estate, poor, despised, this is the nature of the Messiah. Israel expected a Savior who reflected their conception of themselves. Entitled, proud, worthy, externally righteous, and honorable. They couldn't stand the thought of a Messiah who was pretty much the opposite of all those things. Now earlier, you might recall, I mentioned that there are two important things to know about Jezreel in the context of Hosea. First, God had told Hosea to name his son Jezreel as a sign of the judgment God was going to bring against Israel for the bloodshed at Jezreel for the attempted overthrow of God's redemptive plan through the slaughter of the seed of David. So first, judgment. But the second thing you should know about Jezreel is that it represents a play on words. The Hebrew word for seed, zera, is a very significant word in the Old Testament. Starting with Genesis 3 and later in the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, it is the promised seed that encapsulates the hope of the Messiah and ultimate salvation for God's covenant people. Well, Jezreel is a combination of the verb form of that word, Yazar, and the word El, which means God. Yazarel, Jezreel. And here is the play on words part. The verb form of seed can mean either to scatter, as in scattering seed in judgment, or to sow, as in sowing the seed of salvation. And so, while Hosea's son Jezreel initially represents a sign for judgment, 
in chapter 2 of Hosea, God reverses this, as he does also with Hosea's wife Gomer and all their children. God says this through Hosea, It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares Yahweh. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. You see, what you'll see if you study the book of Hosea is that this is a rare moment in the first 10 chapters when God proclaims salvation to Israel rather than judgment. And while the first 10 chapters are mostly full of judgment, God does weave throughout these chapters the hope of the coming Messiah, the promised seed of David, the prophet like Moses who would redeem his people. In chapter 1, Hosea talks about one leader like Moses who will gather the divided and exiled people in order to lead them up from the land and great will be the day of Jezreel. In chapter 3, God promises that afterward the sons of Israel will, will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to Yahweh and to his goodness in the last days. But although these flashes of hope are seen, like I said, the first 10 chapters are primarily a word of judgment against God's people, culminating in these words at the end of chapter 10. God says to Israel, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way, in your numerous warriors, therefore a tumult will arise among your people, and all your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. That sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But if anyone deserved it, it was Israel. And we can know from what Matthew relates in Matthew 2 that Israel had learned nothing from these words and from this well-deserved judgment. Herod, the king of the Jews, was demonstrating that God's people were as much his enemy, the spiritually adulterous rejectors of his tender affection, as they ever were. But with Hosea 11, the very next verse after those words of judgment, God begins asking whether he could possibly be content to cut Israel off forever. Could God divorce his people and never look back? Certainly they deserved it. But if you hear the words God gives starting in Hosea 11, you know God will have none of it. Israel is God's son, and he loves his son. The thought of bringing final and lasting judgment against Israel is so grievous to God that he describes his heart as turning over inside his chest and all of his affections being warmed and kindled. When all is said and done, even though his people despise the prophets he sent, And even though the kings who were the fruit of his people's fleshly ways would not cease their efforts to thwart his redemptive plans, even still Yahweh, the covenant-keeping father of Israel, 
could not conscience the thought of delivering his son Israel over to final judgment. Rather, as Matthew records, this father sends his very heart, the Messiah, the one who, like Moses, the seed of David, the one who, like Moses, the seed of David, he sends Jesus, who bears all of his people's weaknesses and infirmities, even to the point of seeming helpless and hopeless when facing the murderous rage of the self-styled king of his own people. And this is where the true hero of the story intervenes. God sends his word and his protection. He sends his word through his angel. He sends what might seem like the unlikely solution of refuge in Egypt. Yahweh protects his son Jesus because he loves his son Israel, and he will plant his seed, his Messiah, even though Israel in her spiritual adultery continues to oppose his work for her own salvation. And as Matthew records, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Notice in the details here how it is God who is characterized as the hero. He is the powerful father who redeems the weak and needy son. The Israelites were harassed and helpless in Egypt, but they weren't humble. They grumbled and complained and opposed God's appointed means of salvation. Israel in Hosea's day faced such dire circumstances that they were looking to Assyria and Egypt for political relief. And they continued in their self-reliance, their self-righteousness, and general and even pointed opposition to God's plan of redemption. Israel in Matthew's day continued to be weak and needy and undeserving, even as Matthew describes officially through their king, greeting their promised Messiah with literally murderous contempt. But God had made a promise. He had given his word of salvation through prophet after prophet after prophet. And the worst, most contemptible and adulterous actions of his people would not thwart his promise to save them. Why was the first Christmas so full of unexpected features? Why the intense hostility and painfully humble circumstances? Because the hero isn't God's people. And the hero of the first Christmas isn't even the promised Messiah. The hero of the first Christmas is God. And his unspeakably costly exaltation and fulfillment of his own word. Who would send himself to take on the despised weakness that characterized subjects who were rebelling against him? Who would keep promises to people who are hell-bent on opposing the very grace that is seeking to save them? Only the God who is exalted above all things, his name and his word. Friends, this should be incredibly hope-giving to you. How deserving are you of the gift that Christmas brings? Do not make the same mistake Israel made at the time of Jesus' birth. 
If you've made some kind of strange mixture of biblical ideas of morality and messianic salvation, combined with fleshly pursuits of external vindication through law-keeping or political victories or cultural advances, be warned. What looks like the way up is actually often the way down. The way of the fruits of the flesh rather than the fruits of the Spirit. And this is a message for you. Whether you've considered yourself religious or secular, whether you've thought yourself God's ally, or you have doubted his very existence. In each case, we, we learn in Romans 1 to 3, you in yourself are God's enemy, in need of his gift of righteousness by faith. What you have heard this morning from Matthew 2 gives you a roadmap for embracing that gift. Friends, turn away from everything this world and the evil one and your flesh might tell you is worth pursuing. Despise all of those things and repent of them. And embrace the hostility of a world that despises what you have chosen to treasure. How will you do this? By the humility of Christmas. Like Joseph, trust, however imperfectly, in the word of promise, which God has exalted so gloriously in this text, and humbly bend your knee and do whatever hard thing God is calling you to today. Show where your treasure is, that it is with the weak and despised in the midst of hardship with your Savior, who is also despised by the world. Embrace the hostility of Christmas through the humility of Christmas as you trust in the hero of Christmas. I often say to counselees and to counselors in training that if you can make God's greatest glory your greatest desire, you will never be disappointed. God will never fail to glorify himself and his promise. I realize it's a hard thing to humble yourself, to abandon whatever you always thought you knew about how to measure success. It's hard to abandon yourself seeking definitions of right and wrong, of fair and unfair. But these are the hard things God calls you to do, and you must do them. And oh, the joy you will find when you do. As I'm sure Joseph and Mary could testify, there is no safer or more satisfying place than being right in the middle of God's will. Even if that means an extended stay in Egypt. And so hopefully this week, even as you face your own weaknesses and your hardships, you will find yourself quicker to rejoice and be glad because you have seen that these are the very proving grounds of God's awesome salvation. Please pray with me. Oh God, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. We thank you and we praise your name for how you gloriously show yourself wonderful and faithful and true and powerful in this text. Father, we pray again that you would help us in our weakness. Uh, Father, especially those of us who are feeling particular weakness, perhaps in relation to, to illness, that you would strengthen, Father, that you would strengthen your people according to your promise. Father, if not in the outer man, then in the inner man, that we would seek you, that we would um, 
bear in our body the sufferings of Christ with him that we might be exalted on that day. And Father, that it would even strengthen our outer man to remember the hope that we have in these eternally wonderful truths to which you showed your faithfulness when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.